Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest has an MFA from the program for writers at Warren Wilson College and a bachelor's from Carnegie Mellon University. Her writing has appeared in the New Ohio Review, North American Review, and Crab Orchard Review, among other publications. She is from a Lebanese Christian family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and currently lives in Washington, D.C. with her wife. Her debut novel, The Skin and Its Girl, is out now. Please welcome Sarah Seifer. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Of course. Um, I loved your book. It came out in April. And by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be like midsummer. But uh, hopefully people have had time to discover your book. But uh, tell readers a little bit about uh, your debut novel. Yeah, I'd love to. So the title is The Skin and Its Girl. And it tells the story of Betty Rumani, who's the narrator. And she's a queer Palestinian American woman born with cobalt blue skin. And she's facing the hardest decision of her life, whether she's going to follow her beloved out of the country uh, or stay behind in California with the family that she's known her whole life. And in the process of making that decision, um, she's revisiting the stories that her great aunt Nuha, the family matriarch, told her when she was a child. And as she's kind of revisiting those stories, she realizes that the corners of, of those stories are peeling up a little bit and there's some family secrets that start to come out. Definitely. Yeah. I love family secrets, family drama. I think no family is without secrets, obviously. And and I just love when authors find new ways to share these types of stories. Um, what part of the book will you be reading for us today? You know, I'm just going to dive in with the first couple of pages. It, it really sets it up. Yes, I love it. I love that's really most authors do that. And I think I should just require most writers to just read the first pages and let's let's just dive really into it. Um, we'll take it away, Sarah. I'll be back to ask some questions after you're reading. Okay, sounds great. Um, so the title of the first chapter is Postmortem. And, you know, I don't do much of a content warning, but I, I will tell readers that um, it's a kind of a tough birth scene, so um, just take some care, but everything turns out in the end okay. Um, so here we go. Imagine this. In the final hour before dawn, a, the doctor pulls a baby through an incision under a woman's belly. Everyone is doomed to this first unhousing one way or another. And as he lifts me from the dark warmth of my mother's body and unwraps the cord from around my neck, Everyone here begins to work as hard as they can. They work for several minutes until the outcome is obvious. Someone looks at the clock, announces the time. My mother might be to blame. She refused to push, or the doctor, so hard on himself, so ready to take responsibility for real and imagined mistakes. All their medical instruments agree. This is not a beginning, but an ending. When my mother has been taken away, Her blood still marks the floor, the room's metal surfaces, and the doctor's gown. He and the nurse, who have stayed behind to clean the body, are angry. At my mother, yes, but mostly at themselves, because they made promises to her and to the adoptive parents that my birth would be routine. But at this moment, my skin is a pallid version of my mother's wheat-colored complexion, fading to the flat yellow-gray of death. 
Blood vessels ruptured in my face during asphyxiation by the cord, and now fine blue filaments around my mouth cause the doctor's hands to shake as he wipes the waxy film from behind my stiff ears. The nurse hands him another rag. When their work is finished, they will swaddle my body and offer my mother and the adoptive parents a chance to speak with the hospital's chaplain. The doctor checks the time of death with the nurse, but gets no answer. I said, was it 6.38? But the nurse is staring at my body with a frown. Imagine their surprise. A vein pulses on the crown of my head. And imagine, as I have many times, the strangeness of what they see happening to my face. It is turning blue. No, not an airless blue. Like a fine network of roots, cobalt filaments are wiggling outward from lips and eyelids, webbing together under the skin across cheeks and forehead. The broken blood vessels seem to multiply with every branching. They grow in density too, coloring my face, down my neck, across my chest, underneath my fingernails and between my toes. Soon my entire body is an even lustrous blue like a creature from a fairy tale. The nurse asks the doctor, have you seen anything like this before? And later in his report, he will make a fuller description, which will be filed away and forgotten among the handful of other strange cases in the hospital's history, reread only by me a few decades later when the hospital is about to purge its archives. But just now, he can only stare, stranded between curiosity and shock. The nurse sets the bell of a stethoscope on my bare chest and says, there's a heartbeat. The doctor ignores this observation and gropes for the EEG leads, yet no doctor in the world needs a machine to prove what anyone's eyes can see. My whole body is alive and blue, the pure cobalt of a gas flame. The color is most brilliant on my thighs, belly, and cheeks. On a normal baby, the pattern would indicate a healthy flush. My blue eyelids twitch, my blue limbs move, and I sneeze. My birth comes over two centuries after our family first exalted the glories of the color blue, Auntie. But you taught me a few rules of interpretation. Everything depends on context. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much for reading. Um, I, I want to actually start with your you as a writer slash editor before diving into the book. You've been editing. You you are an independent editor, freelance editor since like 2003 for 20 years now. And I guess what I'm curious is like how you've seen writing shift and change that has come across like you as an editor for like the past two decades. Yeah. You know, that's a great question. Like what am I seeing and how has it changed? Yeah. You know, I, I have such a, a small lens and sort mm -hmm. of like a biopsy needle into what's being written at any given time because I work with clients uh, sort of all over this, the genre sure, spectrum. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is like, I'll see trends come and go. Like there was one time maybe in the late 2000s when I, in the course of a year, I had three or four clients who didn't know each other, different parts of the country were all writing about a sociopathic lawyer in North Carolina and it was a thriller at I don't know or there was yeah. like the UFO year so I mean I think there are things that get into the consciousness that, that people want to explore and you know that might come from TV or film or whatever um, but I notice and you know I think this is kind of true with the skin and the it's girl getting published like there's just a lot more risks being taken yeah. in interesting ways um, you know just a, a real fusion of sort of 
traditional psychological realism with magical realism yeah. um, as ways to explore, you know, post-colonial cultures and, you know, queer narratives and things outside the mainstream. Um, and, and that's really exciting to me. Yeah. Do you think The Skin and Its Girl could have been published 10 years ago? Like, do you, like is, I, it is progressive in so many ways. And, but mm -hmm. yeah, like, do you, like, do you think it was ever publishable? That's in quotes before 2023. I mean, it's hard to hold all things equal because, you know, I, I revisited this project. I started a long time ago and set it aside, but I revisited mm -hmm. it when I was in my MFA program. Um, so I think I matured a lot as a writer sure. and also kind of gained some confidence, but I think the answer is the simple answer is no, I don't mm -hmm. think there would have been, um, maybe the audience was there, but I don't think the institutional buy-in yeah. would be there for an unconventional narrative. That's not kind of written in that like sort of unipolar, um, like linear narrative, yeah. um, and, and the kind of explorations that I'm playing with in the novel, it, that there's just a, a, a more of an appetite for that now and more of an understanding of how it can work. Yeah, definitely. I, I find like what literature is doing now. And like, I didn't study literature. I don't have an MFA, uh, but just like as someone who's read and like written and talked to authors for, you know, almost a decade now, it's like even in that decade, things have shifted so much on like what's being what's willing to be explored on the marketing side, on the publishing side, which is a business, not the art side of mm -hmm. the writing. Um, you mentioned that you had to put this down and you matured. Um, when when did you start writing this? I just want to get a timeline because I, I, I most listeners love to hear the timelines of. of yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm sure there's other writers out there among your listeners and I would say have faith and let a project um, kind of bloom in its own mm -hmm. time I started writing scenes from this and some character sketches you know in the handful of years after 9-11 so wow. really a, a long long time um, the cobalt blue baby I think that was probably 2006 or 2007 and it just took me a long time to realize that it worked better if I didn't try to define what blue meant and mm -hmm. that I left it as sort of a zone for other characters to respond to it and sort of characterize themselves in that response. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I, you know, the MFA was really important when I picked up the manuscript again and sort of rewrote it from scratch. It was maybe like a two year project. And I had gone to Palestine in that time and, and sort of did some background research for the book as well. Um, and sort of between starting it and, and picking up it again, I had studied Arabic for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, like it, there was just really a lot going on. Um, but yeah. I, I think when it was ready, I could sit down and work on it. And, you know, having the language to describe what I was trying to do was really important as well. Yeah. Did, that entire time pre-MFA, did you know all these scenes, all these characters were in this one book or were they more just separate projects that, eventually found their way back together. It was all part of the same project, mm -hmm. but I'd say that um, Aunt Nuha bullied her way from the periphery to the mm -hmm. center of this story as, you know, it's no, no surprise that she's that kind of character, but she was really fun to write. And I think in giving her the space that she wanted, it helped me discover sort of the voice and the links between the stories, because a lot of the pieces that I wrote had 
a, a kind of integrity or energy about them, but I couldn't really connect the dots. And it took me a while to realize they don't need to be connected. Mm-hmm. They can just sit next to one another. And that that's a kind of narrative magic as well. Sure. Yeah. And like, once you, once you figured all of the pieces out, once you rewrote from scratch, I'm always curious just about like the first drafts, like complete drafts and what they looked like and what you're looking for in between, you know, draft one, draft one, a draft, whatever you call them. Right. And, and, and what you're shifting after you finally finish a draft. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I guess the, the, the birth story of this novel is that when I finished a draft, it was March 8th, 2020. Oh, uh, sure. So, <laughs> and I didn't have an agent at that point. So I spent a lot of time that year, you know, like we all did just kind of asking a lot of questions about the real world. Um, but I kept the novel on submission and the rejections that I got were sort of what I expected that, you know, if, if folks weren't reading it as, an unconventional narrative. It just seemed like there was a lot going on and it, it, it wasn't what, you know, a lot of agents expected to see. Uh, but late in the year, I did a revision that ended up bringing it all together, which was making it a direct address with, with Betty, the narrator, telling this whole story to her dead Aunt Noha. So that space of like person A talking to person B, was enough of an anchor point that it held it together enough that I, I think that there was a more apparent logic in the opening pages for readers. And, you know, I like to tell the story too. My agent was reading Matthew Salas's Craft in the Real World, which talks about unconventional narratives and, and you know, that not everything fits in that sort of three or five act narrative arc structure that, that gets talked about. And, that sort of opened the door to him seeing that, you know, my novel was, it, it had a logic, but it wasn't a, a standard logic. Mm-hmm. Once it's sold an editor and your editor is assigned to you, you, get, you and you're working together, what, what was, did you, was there a lot of changes that needed to be had or was there a lot of buying in this untraditional narrative? There was an inspiring amount of buy-in and support um, you know, I, I've just been really impressed with my publishing team that they really understood what I was trying to do. They connected with it, you know, kind of on, you know, different people connected with different characters, which I, mm-hmm. I like to see too. Um, but the revisions were really all about just polishing that that last revision that I had done to make it a direct address novel and, you know, filling out a few spots. Um, but <laughs> the biggest editing portion, which I, it surprised me because I am an editor and when I got the copy edits back, I called it the copy auditing mm-hmm. process. And it was like Greek tragedy level unprepared for how long it would take to go through every little like query and change. Um, none of it was really content related, but just, you know, the, the step between a manuscript and a published, published novel is really has a lot to do with a really good copy editor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find that fascinating. Like as an editor, it's like staring at your own work for decades or years or months, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, even myself, it's like, I'm looking at, I write very little for day beautiful's podcast. It's like the same copy, which some changes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, there's been a, t- a copy edit in this 
blur like thing for three months. I have to go back and fix every single podcast. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to bring up you. I saw uh, a list you wrote for electric literature about like uh, current Arab writers that people uh, need to read. And and it was like, you know, uh, one of the electric literature lists. But I'm curious, like mm -hmm. if people are interested in, in what you're doing with uh, this book, do you have any other suggestions that like that could open their world, like other books about Arab Americans or uh, anything that connects with your book? Yeah, sure. I mean, Arab American is such a, a broad term. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, but in terms of fiction that engages with that part of the world or, or you know, from you know, a queer, queer perspective, specifically from that part mm -hmm. of the world, um, you know, there's just a lot of writers doing such such, such good work. So Rabi Alamedin, he's a Lebanese American gay writer. Um, his most recent novel, The Wrong End of the Telescope, um, took up the the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, but you know, he just he has such a witty way of writing, and I, I don't know that there's a, such a tenderness that he brings to some of the moments of that story. I really recommend it. Um, I love Zaina Arafat's You Exist Too Much. Um, mm -hmm. Zain Shukadar is an excellent writer, 30 Names of Night, uh, played with sort of Syrian immigration in the early 20th century and interfaced with the natural world in a way that I really, really loved as a wildlife photographer, <laughs> something that I do when I'm not writing. Um, but there, what books am I, I mean, right now I'm, I'm reading Noor Naga's If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English um, mm. from, from oh, yeah, yeah. amazing, amazing. Um, Hala Al-Yan, Palestinian American writer, Arts in a City and Salt Houses, her novels. Salt Houses is also about the city of Nablus, so I read it in that context. Um, but yeah, there is just so much great writing happening. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sarah for joining the Day Beautiful First Taste Reading Series. You can get her book, The Skin and Its Girl, now wherever you get your books, preferably in indie books or bookshop.org. You can find Sarah on the internet at sarahcypher.com, on Instagram at sarahcypher, on Twitter at 3penny, and she also has a substack called The Bird's Eye that is worth subscribing to. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at daybeautiful. And as always, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>